0: The construction industry in Indiana has depended on Quality Supply and Tool, a local family-owned business, to deliver quality sales and service over the last 25 years. The employees make the difference, like sales
1: expert Nick Worley.
0: What sets us apart is we only offer quality tools and supplies from quality manufacturers. We have a quality-trained sales and service staff knowledgeable of the products we sell and offer. Quality, it's in our name. On South Harding Street in Indy, plus Jeffersonville, Bloomington, and Lafayette, Quality Supply and Tool thinks outside the box. Store.
2: Only the best. Run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do
3: you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Poit and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand
2: by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan
3: spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it.
0: Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson, brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. I would like everybody listening right now to do me the biggest favor of all favors. If you are physically able to do so. On both hands, your right and your left hand, take your middle finger, that's the one that can be profane, and wrap it over your index finger and hold it high in the air for two fingers crossed that coming up two weeks from Sunday, the weather is exactly replicating what we had today in Indianapolis. And absolutely, superlatively, easy for me to say. Picture perfect, sunny Wednesday in Indianapolis. Good evening to you. My name is Jake Query. This is Beyond the Bricks on 93.5 107.5. The fan, Eddie Garrison, is in the master control seat flying everything for us tonight. And the star of the show, as always, is Mike Thompson, whose audio collection is second to none when it comes to the sounds that you will hear over the course of the next couple of hours on this program Mike, we've got some fun stuff to get to tonight. Kind of stepping out of the cockpit just a little bit and into the broadcast booth. We'll explain all of that in a little bit. But first off, uh, greetings and salutations. How are you this evening? Uh, I'm, I'm actually sitting in the dark right now, my friend. Um, we lost power
1: at my house a few about, uh 20 minutes ago, and I'm literally sitting in the dark, hoping the power comes back on. Of course, it has to happen in the last four days I live in this apartment.
0: That that pretty much is the summary of my life, by the way, and most of the things that I venture into, Mike, to be honest with you. Um, but we certainly hope that that works out. Um, we will see. This could be a fun hour, as a matter of fact, of spontaneous radio as we have your connection uh, remotely tonight. I want to begin, before we get into tonight's topic, with a personal note, and I make it a personal note only because I'd like for it to be a public one, so humor me if you will. Uh, For those that may or may not know, I have been on this radio station now for about 19 months. I've been involved in the media in Indianapolis in different capacities over the last um, number of years. I've been on the IMS radio network since 2007. I say none of that with any assumption that any of you particularly are enamored by or want to hear about my resume, except for to say this. When I began my career in broadcasting, I did it kind of on a leap of faith because at that time I was 19 credit hours short of graduating from Indiana University, where I had circuitously ended up after starting at the University of Kansas, not doing very well, uh, coming back home, picking up the pieces, going to IEP and then transferring to Bloomington. When I left, I pursued an opportunity, and obviously that opportunity has allowed me to develop a career, and they haven't kicked me out of it just yet. But when I was a candidate for this job at this radio station on the morning show that I do each morning with Kevin Bowen— I was doing an interview with JMV, who does the afternoons on ninety-three five one oh seven five The Fan, after an Indiana loss to Iowa. I was not yet an employee here at the radio station. And in the interview, JMV referred to me as a graduate of Indiana University. And I corrected him and said, I'm a product of Indiana, John, but I did not graduate. I was always uncomfortable with the assumption that I graduated because I did not. And I did not want the perception that I ever was misleading about that fact. The reason I say all of this long-winded is because the next morning, a woman by the name of Teresa Lubbers, who I will be eternally grateful for, sent me an email. She was the commissioner for the Department of Higher Education in the state of Indiana to inform me that 700,000 Hoosiers in the state of Indiana were just like me. They have college credits that they never completed. For whatever reason, life got in the way, money, a number of different issues. They had classes but never graduated. And so she challenged me. With some assistance from Indiana, kind of a 50-50 proposition, to finish my degree if I would be transparent about my journey in hopes that others would see that if a dumb gearhead like me can do it, that anyone can. So I began a journey um of having to pick up some additional hours due to some juxtaposition of my degree, of 37 credit hours over the last year, which I thoroughly enjoyed, all of it online, through Indiana University that was facilitated through the Kokomo Satellite Campus, but I took classes from all the different campuses, and the graduation was today. And so this is the first radio show that I have ever done as a college graduate. Um, I'm proud of that, but more so, I am very grateful for the opportunity, but also extremely grateful grateful for the chance to let those of you who have thought about it and are in the same position that I was in, and there are a lot of you, um, it is gratifying, it is satisfying, and it is more attainable than you might imagine, including from the financial standpoint where there are areas for the assistance and that which I know can be very daunting. So I would encourage any of you who have been thinking about it, that it is a very satisfying journey, especially when it is complete. So I would hope that maybe one of you um hears that and and realizes that if trust me when i tell you this if i can get the credits in algebra you can finish your degree so having said that mike uh tonight we're going to go back to and i asked you a good trivia question last night that i did not know the answer to i was asked this question you and i kind of put our brains together last night uh and needless to say my brain yesterday not near as big as it is today right but uh, and you were uh, I woke you up so I apologize, but I thought it was a good question and a good topic to start with tonight leading into our first subject matter and that question was when did the Indianapolis or or rather why did the international sweepstakes as it was known in the early years begin to transition into being known not as the international sweepstakes but rather as the Indianapolis 500 mile race and you, were very, and this was a, a great point of research by you immediately in that moment, started resorting to basically the programs and how the programs had it listed. And we did find some pretty interesting things about the way the race has been labeled over the course of the years. Definitely.
1: The uh, the name, you know, the International Sweepstakes and the Indianapolis Five Hundred. it it evolved over time and it it appears that the first time indianapolis 500 mile race appears on the program is 1946 after mr holman uh, bought the track
0: and of course it was the liberty sweepstakes in 1919 that was to commemorate the liberty i guess of world war one for the united states and then and i don't know nor does anybody know the reasoning why International would have been taken out once Mister Holman took over the track in 1946, one would simply assume, Mike, that he maybe wanted the name Indianapolis to be more prominent within the name because of the track that he had purchased. I don't know if perhaps the the lack of the use of the word International was because you were just coming off of an international war. I don't know the reasoning for that. I don't know that we'll ever know that. But what we do know is that 1946 was that first year like you're talking about it was the first year for tony holman of course as the owner of the indianapolis motor speedway it also mike was the year of a guy whose last name a lot of times is pronounced two different ways but i talked actually with donald earlier today donald davidson and he was saying despite the fact that most people say george robeson which is what i have always heard that george robeson's brother hal actually told donald no no it's Robson, but because it became so popular as Robson, they just went with it. But their family name, as they called it when they were children, was in fact Robson. So I will leave it to uh, whether or not we want to be perfectionists of the way the name said it, which is probably the correct pronunciation, or that of which people would most immediately recognize it. But George Robson Robson in 1946 won the Indianapolis 500. That also, Mike, was the first year that Tom Carnegie was working the public address system. So pretty significant year in 1946.
1: A lot going on in 1946 of Mr. Holman buying the track, Tom Carnegie. I mean, can't do a lot better than that as a group. And, and it's really cool. A couple of these clips that we're going to hear, uh, especially this next one, the second one we're going to hear, I'll set up a little bit in uh, – something i was asked on twitter that i had never been asked before so it's really kind of some interesting interaction we had with some of the listeners
0: so as we had mentioned and and this is not necessarily by the way with george robson should we go with robson or Robson, mike your thoughts
1: well i go with robson because that's uh,
0: donald told me it's robson so to me it's robson i would agree with you i think most people when they hear it if we say Robson, know who we're talking about. But we'll say for the sake of our argument here, it's an intellectual group. So we will go with Robson. Uh, But George Robson, 1946. Again, one of the things that was interesting about that race, not only did you have Tony Holman buying the track, but you have to keep in mind that it also was the first race, Mike, immediately following the war. And while there were some drivers who had driven in the Indianapolis 500, served the nation during the war, and then come back to run the Indianapolis 500... It wasn't necessarily the common theme. So the reality is that 46 race probably had a lot of drivers that a lot like the earlier years may have been relatively unfamiliar to some of the fan base because, of course, you had a track that had been laying there and becoming dilapidated in its own right. And in addition to that, a sport who many of its participants had been a little bit busy in the previous years.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that there was – so many people who did come back. Um, unfortunately, Wilbur Shaw was not one of them. Uh, one, of the, probably the most recognizable name. You know, Wilbur Shaw didn't run after the war because he was involved with running the track. But, uh, but you're right. I mean, there was some new faces as well as some people that uh, you know that, that the, the fans had seen before the war.
0: Uh, George Robson is a very interesting character in the history of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway because probably a lot of people would not realize his where he was born. Or where he even lived before finally growing up, essentially, as an American. As a matter of fact, he was born in England in February of 1909. So right around the time that, for that matter, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway itself was being born, after being born in England... His family eventually moved, when he was a young boy, to Ontario, Canada, and then finally to the United States in his teen years, and it was there where he settled in California. And he began his racing career, as so many did, it's kind of hard to know exactly what he was doing, you know, in terms of the immediacy follow or from the 46 race, but he had run in 1940 and in 1941. So this was not one of those, Mike, who was a complete stranger when they arrived in 1946.
1: Oh, no, that's the case. I mean, uh, and, and, and Robson was a pretty well-known, pretty well-known driver and, and you know, not a really surprise when he ended up winning the race i mean it wasn't like one of those oh this is a cinderella story and nobody's ever heard of the guy i mean he was he was a pretty well-known driver
0: the name of the car was thorn engineering the race was may 30th of 1946 the 30th indianapolis 500 mile race george robson had started that race his third run at indy in the 15th position by the time it was all said and done he was 14 spots higher winning that race and interestingly enough mike they didn't waste any time getting to the live reads and commercials did they
1: no, this is one of the, my favorite clips uh, that we've played all month because it immediately after he, he crosses the uh, you know the start finish line and gets the checkered flag they go right into a live read. So I think I think you're going to get a kick out of this one.
0: This is how it sounded in 1946. George Robson, the Indianapolis 500 winner.
4: We catch sight of him now. Robson is coming down here. The flag is up. This will be the white flag, and it's the last lap. There he goes. Now he's heading into the south turn, slowing down a little bit, but pouring it on. And pick it up, easy, Quinn. There he comes into view in the
5: southwest turn. He's pouring on as he comes around. He's hugging right close into the apron. You'll hear his motor pour it on as he passes right in front of the south turn. There he goes, the possible winner of this nineteen hundred and forty-six five hundred mile classic, as he goes into the southeast turn. He is Brooks, and he's. Good going up the back stretch we can see him fade in the way into the distance as he goes into the northeast turn and in just a few seconds he'll be under the walkway up there and which you'll be in view of jim shelton who will bring you that northeast and, and northwest turn uh ropes and jim come in you can see him now well, jimmy jackson just passed again we're waiting for this man here he comes out. he's just
4: entering the north turn he's not going for fast down the stretch and they have the checkered flag out that's the flag that's only been dipped 30 times this will be the 30th time in the history of this great classic here comes Robson down the home stretch now everybody is standing up it's a very tense throng and there is the checkered flag he's crossing the finish line and georgie robeson is the winner norman
3: well ladies and gentlemen just to take it for a few moments these folks this really has been one and talk about a real testimony for any product you've heard that too because when george robeson flashed over that finish line he won with perfect circle piston rings. that's right perfect circles were used in the winning car not some specially made rings designed just for racing cars mind you but same standard perfect circle rings that you can use in your car. Proved in action on the speedway, proved for action on the highway. So when you take your car into your doctor of motors, remember to make sure you have perfect circle piston rings installed. And when you do, well, you'll get the same kind of performance from them in your car as George Robeson got from them in his racing car. They've been winner for years. They're winners every time. Perfect circle piston rings. And don't forget, if you're a mechanic, a doctor of motors, be sure to write into perfect circle company for your free souvenir edition of the magic circle with interesting highlights on the Indianapolis races. Just write your name and business address on a penny postcard. Ask for the souvenir edition that's free to all doctors of motors and send your request to the perfect circle company, Hagerstown, Indiana.
0: Perfect circle, by the way, with product placement and also probably a requirement that perfect circle is mentioned at least 17 times during the course of that read. Perfect circle of Hagerstown, Indiana. If you want to drop, by the way, your postcard to them, we'll still see if you can get that souvenir. Um, Mike, seven cars were on the lead lap that day in the race. And all told, to be honest with you, and we're going to get into kind of the development of the IMS radio network, but when you consider the fact that that broadcast that we just heard was some, what, 76 years ago, uh, 77 years ago now, to be honest with you, it's a pretty... I think impressive follow around the racetrack. Not to say that those guys obviously didn't have the same acumen of anybody today, but they didn't have the same technology. So to be able to throw the microphone around the way that they did and follow the car around, uh, I thought was a pretty good call to be honest with you.
1: No, I agree hundred percent. I think, uh, I think for the time, it's very well done, and and I think we'll hear as we go on a little bit tonight some of the stuff from Mutual that they call the race, obviously, in a much different way with different terminology than you guys do. But, uh, you know, absolutely, I think they do a nice job.
0: So on social media, and by the way, my Twitter account is at Jake Query. That's J-A-K-E-Q-U-E-R-Y, J-A-K-E-Q-U-E-R-Y uh mike you also go ahead and give your twitter handle and you got a pretty interesting question on twitter the other night uh mine is
1: thompson 419 um t-h-o-m-s-e-n 419 i got a question that i've never been asked which i think was interesting which is how many of the 500 drivers do we actually have audio of of their voice you know where we can hear their voice and I, I listed for the the person who asked the the ones that we didn't have. But one of the people they asked about was George Robson, and I at the time I thought, you know what? I don't know if I've, I've ever even heard George Robson's voice, and I found this clip in the 1946 Mutual broadcast. So we do actually
0: get to hear from George Robson. Very cool. Here's how it sounds. <laughs> outside of a car, trying to congratulate him.
5: George has a great big smile on his face. He's just a little guy, kind of slender. His face is all oiled up with the dust of the road. He says, oh my goodness. He's going to drink a great big bottle of milk now. That's how the going to win fifty thousand dollars. Here comes the note, Down the gullet, she goes. He isn't talking right now. One of the satanics is talking to him. They're trying to get around the ball. Well, the Sophie is right in back of him. They're trying to cool him off a little bit. But if anybody can stay cool under such circumstances, I doubt it very much. He takes another gulp of uh, that old juice, as they call it in the army, I and the mechanic whistles into his ear again. He's trying to get close to his wife. His eyes are kind of bloodshot. Lines are creased across his face. Perspiration has made of, uh wet mat. Hey, Wilson, get up a little bit trying to get the microphone around on the other side of the car, and he takes another of to Milton's mare. George, what have you got to say from you, Joel? Well, I'm just certainly glad to be in here right now. The first victory yes, in all uh, First best one. Okay, thanks a lot, George. Well, that time, uh, it seems as though 79 inches in altitude, which George truly possesses that in front of everybody's way, and I was pulled down by a Mr. Photographer here
0: fascinating stuff a to hear his voice b might quite frankly pretty darn descriptive in terms of just the scene itself and getting of course that ice cold swig of moo juice right anytime you can
1: get moo juice mentioned in the post-race interview that's a that's a positive i think i wonder i wonder how um you know if we could have gotten moo juice mentioned you know a few years ago you know what do you think of the moo juice willpower of- <laughs>
0: You think that might create kind of a what-the-heck-are-you-talking-about question?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think we're going to have that in a couple more of these clips tonight as well.
0: That, by the way, was the Mutual radio broadcast that was covering the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Again, we'll talk about kind of how the IMS radio network came about. Mutual did that broadcast in 1946, of course, and they did. They returned in 1947. Unfortunately and sadly, one who did not return in 1947 – Was George Robson because he was fatally injured in Atlanta on September second of that same year in nineteen forty six. Sadly, that puts him in a category of Joe Boyer, Howdy Wilcox, who had co-driven, by the way, a car that had won the race in nineteen twenty three, Ray Keach, Floyd Roberts, George Robson, as we mentioned, and then of course Dan Weldon. Bill Vukovich as well, even though he ran the race the next year. All of those drivers sadly were fatally injured within the calendar year of winning the Indianapolis 500-mile race. But the mutual broadcast, Mike, is one that those are great clips. They obviously did a great job, but they weren't necessarily, if I'm not mistaken, doing the race broadcast flag-to-flag like that, but rather they were doing it throughout for WIBC Radio and others at the beginning of the race, the end of the race, and then updates throughout the course of the race. But they were back, as you had mentioned, in 1947.
1: You're correct, yes. What they would do is they'd start the race, they would finish the race, and then they would do these periodic updates in between. And we'll talk more about that later in the show. They were back in 1947, and this is probably my favorite clip that we will play tonight because I really think that the the starting lineup needs to be done in this way from, from now on. <laughs> so if we can work this Hold out. On.
0: Now, Mike, let me stop you. What is the level of sarcasm in your saying that? Because no, no, you know Mark I, James will no, take the challenge. No, no, I want, I'm completely
1: serious okay. about this. I would like this to be done, the starting lineup to be done this way from now on. So let's play the clip, and then at the end, I think you'll understand why we need to do the starting lineup this way.
6: Roll it. 30 cars 10 rows of three briefly they line up from the inside out we look down on the west straight away of a home stretch of this track here they are number one ted horn patterson new jersey number 18 cliff legere toledo ohio this is his 15th race number 27 the only previous winner in this race maury rose of chicago illinois and south bend indiana Second row, number 54, Herb Odinger of Detroit, Michigan. Number 24, Shorty Catlin of Indianapolis and the only 16-cylinder car in the race. Number 25, the erstwhile blacksmith of Detroit, Michigan. Russ Snowberger, third row. Number 58, Les Anderson of Portland, Oregon. And the Kennedy Tank Special. Number 16, Bill Holland making his first start here. Dirt track champion, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Number 47, billiard ball Ken Fowler of Dayton, Ohio. Fourth row, number seven, Jimmy Jackson. Last year's second place winner. Number 53, a newcomer, Milt Frankhauser of Louisville, Kentucky. Number 28, an old-timer, Roland Free, who raced here 17 years ago, home in Indianapolis. Fifth row, number 14, the veteran George Conner, Los Angeles, California. Number 33, Walt Brown, representing the East from Massapeka, New York. Number 31, the scout Frank Wern in a small four-cylinder car, Keith from Pasadena, California. The sixth row, number 52, Hal Robeson, brother of the late George who won last year's traffic. Hal from Bell or Huntington Park, California. Number 59, the man who calls himself the only serve in automobile racing, Pete Romsevich of Gary, Indiana. Number 46, Duke Nalen of Los Angeles, California. He'll be driving the Mercedes-Benz. Seventh row, number 66, the veteran Al Miller, Detroit, Michigan. Number 9, heavy-footed Rex Mays of Long Beach, California. Number 15, Paul Russo of Kenosha, Wisconsin. One of the two who crashed last year back again in perfect health. Eighth row, number eight, Joey Chitwood, the Cherokee from Reading, Pennsylvania. 41, Freddie Agabation of Albany, California. 44, good-hearted Charlie Van Acker of South Bend, Indiana. Ninth row, 29, Tony Bettenhausen, Tinley Park, Illinois. 43, Henry Banks, Linwood, California. 10, Duke Dinsmore, Dayton, Ohio, 10th row, which was just completed by 7 o'clock last night. Number 34, Cy Marshall, Jacksonville, Florida. Number 3, Emil Andries, Chicago, Illinois. And finally, completing the 10th row, number 38, Mel Hansen, the mustachioed whiz of Indianapolis. 30 cars raring to go.
0: <laughs> okay, now Mike, it was flawless. It was flawless, right?
1: <laughs> here's, here's, here's my thought. Christian Lundgaard the mustachioed whiz of denmark <laughs> yeah. or or how about billiard ball like tony cannot who's heavy footed? Well, i don't even know first of all the i heavy footed. what that means
0: the heavy-footed santino ferrucci right yeah i don't even know what billiard ball like means like what are they even referring to there <laughs> i guess you know that's a good question if you if you are breaking a set of billiard balls you never know where they're going is that would that be what it is i i guess it must be and then you know and then
1: You know, if we could also have, you know, good-hearted Alexander Rossi of California.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Why not, right? Yeah, I mean... We'll see what Mark can't work in this year on the broadcast. How's that?
1: I think it's a good idea.
0: Okay. Um, You know, we talked about the fact that that I love the old kind of crackling sound of the old broadcasts. And this is fabulous stuff, Mike, that you've unearthed. Um, Take me through what we're going to next hear from the race in 1947.
1: I like that as well. I like the kind of staticy, you know, just the sound of it because it sounds the way you would have heard it in 1947. This I picked this out specifically for you because this is definitely they're calling the race in a different way than you would call it I think in 1947 here. And just the the terms and the vernacular used. I just really find this particular clip interesting. So this is a this is from the 1947 race. And this is as the race is going on and they're calling the race. And I I think you'll find this clip particularly interesting.
6: I think at this time our listeners will be interested in knowing that it's been a perfectly swell day here for racing at Indianapolis. The day broke cool, and it's remained cool up here in the pagoda, but once out in the sun there's not too much of a wind. There's a great big snow fight at the southwest end, beyond the grandstands down there, which is a pretty good indication to both drivers and fans alike as to which way the wind is blowing. And right now the smoke coming out of that chimney down there is practically going straight up. There are angels in the sky, and
4: when the winner finally brings home the Bacon, which you will hear about in our next broadcast, will do it probably under perfect weather. I think another thing of considerable interest at this point is unlike last year when a great many people started uh, to leave, no one is leaving at this particular point. Now, here are the standings just as we go off the air in first place, Bill Holland of Bridgeport, Connecticut, in second place, Maury Rose of Chicago and South Bend, in third place, In fourth place, Ted Horn, and in fifth place, Rex Mays, the Californian. Now, remember, we'll be back for our last and final broadcast on this Indianapolis 500-mile automobile race, and that's when we will be bringing them right down to the wire with the winners and all the men that place. Well, now, that's all for now, but be sure to stay tuned to Mutual for the finish of the Indianapolis 500-mile race be brought to you when it comes down to the wire, and that will be in about three quarters of an hour or an hour, brought to you by the makers of Perfect Circle Piston Rings, the piston rings that give better service in cars, trucks, tractors, automotive equipment of every kind. Now, there are no changes on the standings right now. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.
0: Mike, one of the things that's interesting about that, and maybe it's from listening to clips like that. And maybe it's from doing this show with you, quite frankly. And I'm not saying that others on our broadcast don't do the same. I'm sure they do. But at least once, and sometimes people probably needle me for it a little bit. Probably rightly so. But typically, at least once during the Indianapolis 500-mile race broadcast, during my responsibility, which is, what, 11 or 12 seconds of a 42-second lap, I try to incorporate some sort of a visual as to what the sky and the weather look like and the exact reason for that mike is because as we have talked about there is an element of theater of the mind and i think about the jake query and the mike thompson that would be listening to that race broadcast in 50 or 60 years, God willing, if those tapes are still around and people still have an interest in what we're doing, um, and, are, and are asking themselves, I wonder what the weather was like in the 2023 Indianapolis 500. And so I at least once try to incorporate things about how much sun or cloud cover there is. Um, the wind is a big one and what the colors and the crowd look like. And I know that the colors of, of, the, of the cars themselves, the kaleidoscope of colors, as we say, I think it's also incredibly critically important, not just for the person who is listening on the other end of the radio in that moment, but rather to historically archive for people in the future. And I love, 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 and I'm saying that as big as the four letters from Robert Indiana at the art museum, the fact that those guys did it in 1947.
1: I think it's really interesting that you do that and i i like the fact that you 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 talk about the colors because that was sid's thing especially you know Uh, car wasn't red it was cherry red or it was sky blue and you know he he, it really helps paint that word picture and i think that's really important what you do
0: and for those that are curious simon pagino's menards color for example mark james myself nick yeoman kristen michael young dave first all of us have debated for years. We still don't know whether or not it is uh, highlighter green, highlighter yellow. I think we finally settled on tennis ball yellow. But it might be green as well. Perhaps it depends on your eye. There is no mutual, I guess, um agreement on what exactly color that car is but mutual was a big part of the broadcast of course for the indianapolis motor speedway and its radio coverage in the late 40s and moving into the 50s including a mutual tag team if you will that's redundant but a mutual anchor spot we'll explain what i'm talking about when we return to beyond the bricks This is Beyond the Bricks. Brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. And we are most grateful for that partnership. Hopefully a mutual feeling, if you will. Jake Quarry along with Mike Thompson, Eddie Garrison here as well. We're talking about the old Indianapolis 500 broadcast, some of the early years. That includes those from mutual. Mike, for those that are just joining the program, real quickly again... Take me through exactly um, the way Mutual did the broadcast and what it was and then how they suddenly got a new kid on the block, if you will, as they started to head towards the end of the 1940s.
1: So Mutual would do the beginning of the race, the end of the race, and then they would do periodic 15 minute updates throughout the race. And that would kind of really throw havoc on their schedule for the day. But it, it was it was the format of the of the times. In 1948, they they hired a, a young guy from WIBC named Sid Collins to handle the, the dangerous south, south turn that, that was uh, going to be seeing so much action. And I found today, actually, I was looking on the broadcast and I found the first thing Sid Collins ever said on the mutual broadcast, which I thought was kind of pretty pretty special piece of audio.
0: His voice would stay synonymous with the Indianapolis 500... And, of course, would be a fixture on it until 1977. But this, as Mike had mentioned, is the first time that the voice of Sid Collins accompanied the world's greatest race. They're going down now. All of them underway so far.
4: A little bit of trouble over here from Charlie Van Acker. But they're moving into the south turn down there. This is the pace lap. The race has not officially started yet. There goes Tony Buttonhouse moving down there. Now they're moving in. There's Joey Chitwood. There goes Les Anderson here comes chet miller in that mercedes and now they're
2: moving into the south lap and let's pick up sid collins down there on the pace lap on the south turn sid Later, and now here on the south turn we're getting our first glimpse of the big 1948 show and this is the colorful and strictly entertaining part like soldiers in precision marching in dutiful order behind the pacemaker with speedway president wilbershop 33 proud racers proudly bearing all manner of color combinations of numbers like a rainbow of color they roar past our broadcasting booth the illusion is such that we might reach forward and down with one foot and step on one of these cars as though it were a large quivering fetal they are quivering and straining to hit full speed to get out of formation but the next time around they'll be fighting for the lead in a crack of the juicy lap rises and prestige of heading the surging pack and now the pace car has undoubtedly gone into the middle of the back stretch and is nearing the far north turn where jim shelton is waiting to pick up the entire procession take it
0: jim And, of course, that would mean that Rex Mays, Bill Holland, and Maury Rose would have been the first cars to come into view for Sid Collins. That was the first row. It was Maury Rose that would win that race. But when the green flag fell, Sid Collins called the first lap of the 1948 Indianapolis 500-mile race. Pick him up, Sid Collins.
2: Here he comes in his white car. As they come around the south turn, where a driver's skill is exercised more probably than anywhere else in the track. We'll be watching throughout the afternoon to see exactly how these men and their precious miles go around these turns. They're now streaming up the back stretch. The asphalt, where they gain speed, they're heading close to the north-east turn at this time, where life and death are weighed in the balance of how expertly the drivers execute these turns. Take it, Jim. All right, Sid, here they come right now. And it is effectively-
4: For the first lap of this 500 mile race, 200 laps to two and a half miles each around this tremendous speedway. Brick and asphalt it is. And here they come across the siding line, and it's Rick May from California.
0: Maury Rose, of course, had won the race in 1947, that, of course, the 1948 race. He was trying to match Wilbur Shaw as a two-time, and by that I mean back-to-back winner at Indianapolis. There had been, of course, other two-time winners, but in terms of a back-to-back winner, Wilbur Shaw was the only to have done it until Maury Rose was able to close that exact deal in 1948. And so
4: Maury Rose is starting his last lap, and let's pick him up as he goes around the south.
0: The funny thing about that, of course, is the fact that Mutual all of a sudden, you know, they're covering that race in nineteen forty eight. Mike, they did things a little bit differently in terms of the broadcast as you had mentioned, the beginning, the end updates throughout. And there are those that probably didn't know about the race that were turning into their favorite program and suddenly were it was like Heidi twenty years beforehand, right? That's right. And
1: they would give you a quick announcement to say, hey, your favorite show is not going to be on today. And so if you're tuning in for Against the Storm, you're going to be out of luck. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and there probably were those that wrote angrily. They didn't email back then, but they certainly put a postcard that just simply said Indianapolis Motor Speedway probably mutual whereas Against the Storm. When we come back, we talked about the fact that there was a mutual pairing in the booth. Sid Collins might have played a part in that. We'll explain next. Jay Query, Mike Thompson, Beyond the Bricks here on a Wednesday night in Indianapolis. Good evening to you from 93.5, 107.5, the fan on Monument Circle. Talking about the Mutual broadcast of the Indianapolis 500. And in 1950, Bill Slater, who was the designed host, if you will, chief announcer for Mutual, was under the weather, thought he wasn't going to be able to do the race. Sid Collins, who you heard who had joined those broadcasts, was set to anchor it. Bill Slater showed up at the 11th hour, was feeling better, and just decided, you know what? Two's better than one. So they co anchored.
4: Now, here in the pagoda with me is Sid Collins. Uh, top Midwestern sports broadcaster, and Sid's going to give you just a little bit of the lineup. He's going to give you the entire information as to the lineup of the 33 cars who have taken their places down on the track here now. Sid Collins, or do you want to bring in Jimmy Melton singing back home again in Indiana?
2: I think we better get a rundown of the cars right now, Bill. Walt Faulkner in the pole position at 134.343. has set a new track record, smashing Ralph Hepburn's previous record for a pole position. Is in the pole spot from Long Beach, California in car number 98. In the front row in the middle, Freddie Agabashian, number 28 from Albany, California. Then Maury Rose, three-time winner of the race in car number 31 from South Bend, Indiana. In the second row in the inside spot behind the pole car is George Conner, number five of Los Angeles, California. Then Johnny Parsons, AAA 1949 champion, car number one from Van Nuys, California followed by Jack McGrath on the outside of the second row in car number 49 from South Pasadena, California. In the third row, Duke Dinsmore, car number 69 from Dayton, Ohio, followed by Tony Bettenhausen, number 14 from Tinley Park, Illinois, a farm boy from there. Joey Chipwood in car number 17 from Reading, Pennsylvania, takes the outside spot on the third row. In the fourth row, last year's winner, Bill Holland, car number three from Miami, Florida. Pat Flaherty in the inside of the fourth row in car number 59 from Glendale, California. Then Cecil Green, a rookie driver, in car number 54 from Houston, Texas. In the fifth row, Dwayne Carter, number 18 from Culver City, California, followed by Spider Webb, who couldn't get started last year, in car number 21 from Bell, California. Then Terry Hoyt, the youngest boy in the driving seat, age 21 in car number 81 from Indianapolis, Indiana. In the sixth row, Myron Ford, second in the Triple A championship ratings in 1949 from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Bayless Leverett, number 24 from Glendale, California, followed by Dick Rathman in the Cinderella car from Alhambra, California. In the seventh row, Paul Russo, number seven from Hammond, Indiana. Bob Brown, number four, from Long Island, New York. Then Henry Banks, in car number 12, from Compton, California. In the eighth row, Bill Schindler, 67, Long Island, New York. Lee Wallard and Troy Rutman. In the ninth row, Sam Hanks, Matt Kellings, and Jimmy Davies. In the tenth row, Jim Rathman, Dick's brother, followed by Walt Ader and Jackie Holmes, who drove the six-wheeler last year. In the eleventh row, Gene Hartley, Jimmy Jackson, the Cummins diesel special, and Johnny McDowell, who was the last man to make the lineup and qualifications last Sunday. Once again, here's Bill Slater.
0: I'll tell you what, Mike. In reality, on this program, you are the Michelangelo that puts together David, and I'm get, I'm the guy that just gets to pull the curtain down over it in the Florence Square. I thought last night we had a really good show with Johnny Rutherford. Uh, tonight's you you pulled even a better masterpiece. That was some awesome audio.
1: Thanks. I enjoyed this one tonight with uh, with pulling some really fun stuff together. I uh, and and to get to hear Sid his first. Time on the broadcast that was really special, and and uh, and I'm hoping for some more billiard like ball, billiard ball like <laughs> people to come
0: out, <laughs> you know, some of, some of that. Will you get like like? I want to know what my prize will be if I work mustachioed whiz into the broadcast. Oh, there's got to be some kind of reward if you can
1: work. Especially if it's because Lungard's mustache is so quality. If you could work Christian Lungard, the mustachio whiz from Denmark in <laughs> the broadcast, that would be The epic. problem is
0: I think 90% of the audience would think mustachioed is simply like a a, a word from there, right? They would be like, what does Mustachio oh, right. even mean? I don't know that I've ever even heard it. Mike, a lot of fun tonight. Hopefully tomorrow the weather will look the same and your power holds up. But uh, nonetheless, a lot of fun tonight. So much fun that I think we'll do it again tomorrow night. Sound good to you? Yes, and uh quick
1: live read, shout out Verizon for keeping my laptop powered this entire time with no power in the house.
0: There you go. This is Beyond the Bricks. We'll talk to you tomorrow.